So you've been doing a bunch of Udemy or Udacity? Which one? I'm not sure how you say it, but Udemy. They had a $9 sale the other day, and I just bought a bunch of courses that are normally like $200. Cool. And you actually did any of them? Did you do any of them? Yeah, I actually went through the React one, which was kind of good for me because for doing a ridiculous amount of JavaScript, I do tend to do a ridiculous amount of JavaScript just in Rails. So I think the most helpful part of that course for me was just going through, like kind of guided with somebody setting up all the modern tools you want to set up and doing it outside of Rails. So like Browserify, Babel, Karma, Mocha. It actually made me really curious about React Native. So the last part of the course was all React Native. And then I started listening to the React Native podcast, which I just learned existed. And people are claiming that they can use uh, kind of their flux architecture whole cloth between web and mobile, which seems really promising. Interesting. Can you talk about that some more? I was going to ask y'all if you've used React Native. Uh, I have, and I know Jervon has. What did you think about it? I think it's really cool. Same. Um, <laughs> I think the the thing, though, uh, to turn on the, the React hater side is that I, I want to see someone else come out with a competing thing. I never thought I would really say that about JavaScript stuff. But the thing is that there's a JavaScript engine in iOS, and that's what React Native is on. So if that's true then why don't we see other frameworks shipping to that target? Wait, wait, wait. You're saying you want more JavaScript solutions to write iOS apps? Yes. <laughs> I think there's already a lot, right? No. Name, name well, there's, there's Len told me about JavaScript native over the weekend. Uh, yeah, the oh, okay. native, native script, which actually came out at the same time. It kind of got overshadowed by React Native. Oh, cool. Then what's up with that? I think people just like React Native more. Um, okay. Does the uh, native script have components? And I th- I've not looked into it much. All my entire knowledge is just from listening to like one podcast about it. But uh, I think it's just straight up JavaScript. Uh, I don't know exactly how you instantiate controls and things, but um, it's supposed to be really fast. It's actually put out by Telerik. I really like React Native. I, it's very. I don't want to say easy, but it's just. Getting something on the screen is, is super fast. Like you, once you install CLI and you init and you load up the simulator, you can have a hello world going right away. And it seems pretty basic to do things like the fetch from an API. You just use the fetch API. Things are properly named, like a list view is a list view, and then you just style it with you know the subset of CSS that, that's available to you. I think there's something there. Well, wait, do you ship CSS in React Native? I thought you just kind of styled it inline. Well, I, I call it CSS, but you're just styling it in line with the JavaScript object. And when they describe it, they, they kind of say, it's like using the same technology that you used to, HTML and CSS. Uh, but I usually don't put it in line either. I just, well, sort of in line. I'll extract it and just call the, the object in, in line or the property. So has your mind changed when on React at all? Uh, so, well, breaking news is that I'm not, I finished up that project, but that project I think made me a little React bitter. I think it was that thing where I think the way a lot of people feel about Backbone is they see a Backbone mess and they just kind of blame Backbone and, and not those projects. Uh, I mean, there are things I'm frustrated with by the community. I'm frustrated that 
everybody has to rebuild everything like literally 20 or 30 times. And then you just have to try to hope you pick the right one that doesn't die in a year. That part of the React community is frustrating. It's also frustrating for people who said Backbone did nothing to be loving React because Backbone did more than React. (laughs) But then on the other hand too, I mean, React is winning the framework wars and kind of as a result, getting some of the best tooling these days, like things like React Native. So uh, to that regard, I kind of want to stick around and build something else in React to see what I think if I use uh, a Flux architecture that isn't dead already and use the latest router and stuff. And I'm also really curious about reusing stuff native and uh, web, which you know is a promise people have been chasing for years and it never seems to really happen. So if that can happen in React Native, I'd be really excited. So you just mentioned breaking news that <laughs> you're finished with that project. But what does finish mean? Uh, finish means uh, I'm going into the office today and not having paying work. I actually have a whole list of side project ideas, which I guess since I'm not currently employed in any fashion, they'll be just main project ideas. What, how long will this fun employment last? <laughs> what, what are your goals? My fun employment will last until I find a good project I'm interested in. I definitely don't mind uh, a couple weeks off, but I'm going to start looking for, I guess, new freelance work. But December is probably going to be a bad month for it. So, And I also don't mind just taking some time and kind of retooling and boning up on Elixir and React stuff. And I'm actually really, really motivated. And Emacs... I would Ron Eve to see the uh, Space Max A to Z videos if you haven't. Oh, I'll have to check them out. They're so boring, but there's this guy going through Space Max and he'll press leader uh, and he starts like at the numbers and then starts at A and just goes through like what leader, every letter, every single option in Space Max does. Jeez. And I love it. I think he's up to like uh, K so far and it's like four hour long videos. <laughs> Interesting. I'll check that out. So I, I cut you off here saying... Uh, yeah, there's something that uh, I'm really excited to kind of do side projects as main projects. Be very interesting. But on the other hand, I am you know, looking out for JavaScript and Rails and Elixir projects. So Pam, Justin, and I were at the conch. Pam, what did you think of the conch? Uh, the closure so, conch. Yeah, the yeah. closure conch, um, which was in Philadelphia this year. I I liked it. Um, I think that conference-wise, some things could have been organized a bit better. There, I mean, given it's kind of I wanted to go, and it was interesting to go as a I would say like a townie. Um, you know, I went home every night, and but I felt like there weren't. It wasn't clear. Well, we just we talked about this uh, in in like when we were out to lunch or something about how. There weren't many opportunities that were like, okay, here's, you know, it's now lunchtime. Here's, you know, some perhaps guidance on how to do this. It was just kind of on your own. Um, I mean, I'm kind of comfortable with that situation, but I know that there are plenty of other people who are not. And so I thought that that could have been better. Also, a a good number of talks were good, but then there were a few that were kind of lackluster. And that's, that's kind of disappointing when that happens. Which ones did you enjoy? Well, there was one talk on ClojureScript and React Native that was super duper good. Um, <laughs> that was that was Javon's talk. So Javon spoke uh, and did a really good job. Uh, you did a really good job uh, 
you, you had higher energy and I know that you are working on that. Yeah. Thank you. So, so good work. Um, and Thanks. also the, the ridiculous thing is the videos were out like the same day. So we can yeah, get, link to the video. I gave my talk around like three o'clock and we went to dinner and I got on an alert that says my t- uh, talk was online. And I was like, whoa. Yeah. I, they were really, really fast in turnaround. But, I mean, I don't really want to say the ones that I think were lackluster, because um, I, I don't know, that might be mean. Yeah. But, but I would say, if you've ever thought about giving a conference talk, uh, you know, you still see people who aren't quite hitting the bar. So, you too, listener, can give a conference talk. That is that is the lesson I would say to take away from that. Could you give uh, tips to make your talk better without making it obvious which talks were not lackluster. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's because it's common things. It's if you look like you're bored with your topic, then I'm bored with your topic. Like, that's a really simple one. Oh, there were some that were just, uh, there were more than one speaker did this where they said, you know, I wrote this proposal intending to blank, you know, X, Y, Z. And like, maybe don't share that in your talk and or like the bar is low because people apparently submit things that they aren't actually qualified to talk about. So, you know. But wait, I mean, well. The bar is low. Yeah, but was their abstract different than their talk? I think, I mean, because I find that excusable. Kind of. Like you start writing a talk and realize like. No, I don't think it was that. It's like, it's like they, mm, no, it's, it's more like I intended to write this demo and then I didn't finish. Like someone made the talk driven development joke, which I think is very tacky. Um, oh, what's that joke? People like joke about talk driven development. And specifically some conference have said like, do not do this. Like do not propose something assuming that you're going to work on this project and then the talk will be great by the time the conference comes. Go ahead and do the work and then pitch the talk mm. because the conference you know, does come up really, really quickly. When yes, you do it that. does. <laughs> <laughs> so, or if you do that, don't make it obvious <laughs> by making a joke about it. And basically you're basically underselling your demo before you do your demo. Right. So mm-hmm. that's what I don't like. One of the things is don't, don't be negative or don't, you know, yes. downsell yourself. Yes, in That's your talk. Like, if you tell me you think you're bad, then I might be inclined to believe you. The version <laughs> so of that I tend to that. see, yeah, I see people that are like, oh, I wrote this last night at like two in the morning after the bar or something. I also I was, think I that that's flippant obnoxious. Yeah. Because sometimes yeah. it's actually like, you know, sometimes that's good. Like, it's actually really good stuff and then they're, or it looks like it's good. And then they, there's, oh, you know, I didn't do anything. And so I'm, you know. It's it's an obnoxious, humble brag in a way, even if they meant, mean it to be degrading sometimes. Right. Like at two in the morning, you should probably be asleep, not, you know, finishing your demo over something you proposed four months ago. Uh, speaking at conferences is interesting. It's it's sort of easy, but it's difficult. So it's like, you know, it's this thing where you get up on stage and talk or present. And that might come naturally to some people. So it's easy in that way, but... It takes a while to get it okay or better, I think, than than your baseline. So you have to really hone your your skills. So don't let that don't let speaking intimidate you. You will not be great at first, but you will get better. Do you guys share the same idea? Yeah. Or, yeah. There was a debugging talk that I really liked. That was the keynote for one of the days. 
Yeah, I oh. think that was really good. That's been some stuff that I've been thinking about, but didn't know where to look. Besides, I had known about the course, but not the book. So I bought the book. Yeah, so I can actually... Well, that's one I would call out as the bar is also low. Because that was a really good keynote, but ultimately the speaker was talking about someone else's work. Mm, So you too can give a conference talk if it consists of just discussing someone else's work. I mean, I actually really, when I wrote my write-up, I actually really recommend that video. It doesn't mean it's a bad talk. It means like, oh no, I just had a lot of thoughts on, wow, people who think conference speaking is hard have not seen it from this perspective that the bar is kind of low that you can go and read someone else's book and then talk about it like all those cognitive bias talks this year i've seen what two or three of them at different conferences talking about cognitive bias which is basically thinking fast and slow the talk so thinking fast and slow is a book about cognitive thinking or Mm. cognitive bias and basically, people have been reading this book, and it's really popular, and some people have turned it into tech talks. Some of those are really good. Some of those are just like are somebody good, doing a book report. Yeah, it's true. True. Sometimes it is just, I read this book, and now I'm going to tell <laughs> you about it. Like, I read this book, and here's, you know, applying it or understanding it. And, you know, it takes longer than 20 minutes to read most of these books. So a talk definitely has a place in kind of the pedagogy i guess but yeah anyway thoughts there's also a talk on building a game editor using closer and java fx that one was pretty good that was a dual presentation that i thought they did a good job on it's hard to pull off the, the dual presenting at the same time or taking turns but this company king games they build uh this editor for, I guess, programmers to make iOS games. And they rewrote their current app uh, using Clojure and JavaFX. And it works super fast. And there are some interesting architectural ideas behind it. You should check that out, Len, for your front employment. Play with yeah. the game editor. <laughs> I think he's, he, uh, the speaker said if you want an invite, you can email him. And uh, you can get an invite. I already have quite the list of side projects. You do, you do. This could be a side <laughs> side project since I know you like games. It'll be cool. It could be cool to make a board game or something. Oh, board games would be interesting. Uh, in college, we actually were doing some game stuff in like OpenGL, and it did not click with me because I am not the biggest fan of math. I don't know how much more math is required these days with Unity, but that was my uh, sticking point with that. Like what? What math do you mean? There's a lot of like calculus and trig for like uh, acceleration, deceleration type of like algorithms. Maybe uh, probably all, that, all the physics stuff is probably just bundled these days. But I was like making like a racing car game, and just to get the acceleration to feel right was like a lot of calculus, uh, and even just the, the the shapes of things. Like when we were programming them like manually in OpenGL to get like a curve on a car or something, we're doing math. This was a long time ago, so my memory is very rusty. <laughs> I feel like there's still math, but maybe it's not. Maybe you write a function and then just work on that one function. Or yeah, probably like, instead of creating that that thing in calculus that you're doing, they probably expose that as a math uh, function and like Pam was saying, and then you just play with the values. Hmm. I'm I'm not sure. Yes. I don't play with any games. <laughs> hmm game stuff do you think uh so 
there are probably not a lot of game, game engines while you're in school, but do you think that was sort of like a barrier for you, not having something easier? Like, if it was easier, would you have gotten more into it? Yeah, I think if there's something like Unity that I could actually, you know, e- easily make something and much less share it, I think that could have been a, a game changer. <laughs> something to keep in mind. Professors. <laughs> yeah, overall, I thought it was a, it was a good conference. Um, I grew up Pam with a sort of getting together thing, but uh, they seem very hands-off with most things. I kind of understand where they're coming from. Or their hands-off unit, but I was happy Wait, that the, I wasn't filming. the organizers are hands-off? Yeah, I, it seemed that way. Like, everything, they were like, oh, you adults figure it out. At least I got that by. Like what? Um, like lunch or? Lunch, uh, sort of dinner plans. I think I got that vibe from the end sessions also. But. How do you think that uh, affected things? I think that there were a lot of, I mean, I remember in the conference room that they asked people to raise their hand if it was their first closure con uh, and like a lot of people raised their hand. And so I think that maybe it was, there was an assumption of, oh, well, people know how to do this thing. But then in fact, there were plenty of people there who do not know how to do this thing. And I think that that's a simple, that's a simple mistake to make. So Yeah, I think they're just coming from, you know, a small ecosystem that's growing and they might not have realized how fast it's growing or how many newbies or new closure programmers are coming in. The interesting thing though is uh, a lot of people that I talked to had the same thing to say. Oh, I'm using closure on the side and I really want to bring it to my, my job place. Uh, can one of you give me an elevator pitch on why I'd want to do that? Because I know personally, I mean, well, my list of languages I want to learn is pretty long. And I have an aversion to things that are on the JVM because I don't need it. Like I could see it being really valuable if, you know, I was in a place where we had other projects on the JVM. But as someone who doesn't, like that feels like just extra weight to me. Is that yeah, a, I have a that. valid concern? I have, I have that concern also when I sit down and think about it. Well, I use the JVM. I, I love the JVM because I use JRuby at work. I mean, I think that one one pitch in Clojureville would be, so for me, it's if I would like to use a Lisp, like I find Lisp languages interesting and very composable. Uh, Clojure in particular is one that is more about, that prioritizes the ability to be understood by other people compared to other Lisp family languages that can, you know, be really cool. Like kind of like when you write Haskell where you're like, wow, that's so cool. I wrote that in three lines. Too bad no one can understand what the hell is happening. So closure is a bit more understandable. And furthermore, it gives you interop with anything in Java and on the JVM, which since a flip ton of stuff is written in that, and especially in academia uh, and enterprise, that there's this this Java stuff floating around everywhere that it gives you interop with that. They sell it as a practical Lisp. So it runs in, like all the things that, that Pam listed, you can do at your job and it's you can easily bring it in and sort of merge it in with your current applications that run on the JVM. It's similar to Ruby for readability wise. You might think, oh, parentheses, it's not readable. But there are lots, it's readable and there are lots of methods or functions that you come across that 
do the things that you have to manually do. That sort of like blow me away. Like sometimes I'll be trying to do something and I'll go to the docs and be like, oh, that exists already. Cool. Also immutability. I think that's with the persistent data structures. That's pretty powerful. Uh, it seems like a lot of folks are using it for data processing stuff. So big data stuff. You can easily make a data pipeline to sort of transform your data and do calculations on it. What else? If you have something against a JVM, uh, you could use it with Node or JavaScript using ClojureScript, which is pretty much the same, I would say, to convince you to get to dry closure. The ideas that are coming out of the closure community, I really like. I'm not only learning a programming language, I'm learning some new things about software. And even if they are sort of making up their own terms, they're sort of giving terms to those things. Wait, terms like what? A good one is like transducers. So when transducers came out, there are all these talks, and when you first hear about it, you think it's a insane idea, right? Like, can't wrap my head around this. But if you sit down and just look at the code or look at the examples, it's just basically composing iterators. So it's composing like map, filter, and reduce, and all those things. But it was just like, oh, transducers, this is this revolutionary idea, things like that. But with Omnext, the sort of uh, demand-driven architecture for the front end, stuff like that's pretty cool. Uh, I'm not sure I would have, I guess there's Relay and Falcor, which are similar. But I think Clojure script and Clojure takes it to the next level. Oh, so wait, Ohm does like Relay and Falcor type stuff? Yeah, they, they still, well, Ohm next, they took some ideas from uh, Relay, Falcor, and Diatomic, which is their database. And Re Relay and Falcor are frameworks that allow you to basically ask for the data, uh, the associations, and the columns that you need, and then the server just responds with it. Is that right? Pretty much, yeah. I think there's like your server, your front end knows what it needs, and then it just requests that from the server, and the server should be able to understand that sort of request of give me this. And you're not, so you're no longer sending like, uh, give me your parents, and then give me all your siblings, uh, and then composing a, a view from that. You're more saying, give me, give me this. So I've only watched talks on Falcor um, and sort of read the Relay docs. So my understanding is very light. But I've been trying to understand Ohm next. I think you should take a look at ClojureScript land. I think you, you would enjoy it. Even as so, a, so wait, is Ohm next like a server-side component that'll let that work? Or how does your server so, actually just respond with the pieces that you need? I haven't gotten that far yet. But from my understanding, you just have to build it so it understands this type of pull, pull uh, syntax, or this type of request. Um, do you have any idea on that, Pam? I don't know. I think I'm in the same same boat as you with regards to understanding Falcor. You're talking about the how Ohm Next is influenced by Falcor and Relay. Yeah, yeah. Or just how you would implement your backend for this this type of demand driven. Yeah, I don't know, but I think I mean that that definitely wasn't. The Ohm Next talk was another video I'd recommend because I feel that I really liked his, in his conclusion, he said, you don't have to use Ohm Next, but whatever UI framework you use should consider these things. So the with the things being, hey, maybe don't make 
a ton of requests all the time when a lot of your consumers are going to end up being on low bandwidth connections, which is basically the opposite of how a good number of JavaScript frameworks are written, which is there's plenty of bandwidth, so make tons of requests whenever you need it so that you can have a very fast first page load. So that's interesting. I think we're coming to a good a good time in JavaScript framework land very soon. I mean, the one thing making more requests lets you do is like help perceived load times and help uh, you know if you've got a whole lot of data to be able to load little bits at once, right? Because I mean, doing a lot of joins to get like a big tree of data could be pretty expensive from the server. It could be, but I mean, I guess that depends on how your backend works. Not if you're using Clojure land. <laughs> In closure, everything is magically fast <laughs> for no reason. In other JavaScript framework news, I've been using Angular 2. Oh, I really? really? Like it. Yep. On the TypeScript version? No, not on production. No, no I said, I've been using I said on ES6. purpose. <laughs> oh, on purpose? Yes, on purpose. But uh, I actually, I, I highly recommend it. Not for adoption yet, but I think it's something to pay attention to. Really? Yes. Especially it seems like, well, we'll see what happens when more of the documentation is written out, but they got rid of a lot of the $10 words used in Angular 1. Oh, that's the thing that turned me off the most from Angular. Right. I thought so. Um, I mean, it turns a lot of people off, so you don't want to transclude your directives. So <laughs> they got rid of a lot of that bullshit. And, or it's you know just called things that other people can understand. And uh, in general, it's just better architected. I haven't looked at it, but I've heard people say it's not even Angular 2. It should just have a whole new name. It's it really different. could. It really could. Um, but I mean, I think it's a thing where they they can and should ride on the Angular brand name. Especially it's, I mean, the more I look into Angular, the more I realize just how ubiquitous it is in enterprise. So in terms of enterprise apps, that's mm. Angular is... Yeah. I, I don't know how, like, I, in terms of, like, the framework boards, I feel like that's where they've won. It's, like, the safe JavaScript framework for no apparent reason. A certain consulting firm <laughs> who does Java definitely does a lot of Angular. <laughs> yes, Java and .NET shops. Interesting. When they choose a JavaScript framework, that's what they go with. So what, what's the best part of Angular 2? Well, a couple things. One being the that it's in a direction of reactive programming. So that's actually why I uh, decided to work with it on a, a little project because it's based on, it uses and depends on RxJS alpha. So the next version of RxJS, which I made a grand total of one contribution to, but hopefully we'll make more. Uh, and so that, so that means that they're using, instead of promises, things will be observables which means you can treat things as event streams instead of promises, which then opens the door for reactive programming techniques, which is basically wizardry. So it's interesting, the front end or the UI portions of things um, are getting some really cool ideas and making it really fun to program UIs. So I'm excited to see where things are going. Yeah, I mean, that's why I like programming UIs. It's, I feel like it's still where a lot of the interesting stuff is happening. I mean, the, the other part of computing that I find very interesting is distributed computing, um, where a lot of interesting stuff is happening. However, I feel like 
the more I pay attention to it, the more I see that everyone just says that everything is on fire. So <laughs> that is every, true. there's always every a talk, fire every talk on just, yes. In every talk on distributed systems, there's always a picture of something on fire and that's just not very promising, but I guess that's also the same thing people say about JavaScript frameworks. So, you know, maybe it's just the same situation. If there's a lot of turmoil, then there's probably interesting stuff happening. But I feel like, you know, JavaScript needs to, or the frameworks need to go through this sort of iteration to get to these ideas and get to better ideas. That's what I mean. I think the turmoil is causing people to think harder and attract Mm -hmm. people who like hard problems. Like, no one's going to invent a really, like, a significantly better dishwasher anytime soon because dishwashers are pretty good. I don't know. Maybe there is, like, the best new dishwasher, and I don't know. But, like, when a problem's already kind of solved, like, pretty well, there's not a lot of people trying to work on it. But when there's a lot of flux and turmoil... Oh, God, why do they use the word (laughs) flux for an architecture? Everything is terrible. Anyway, um, but when, when things are constantly changing or not fixed, then people can challenge ideas and try new things fairly low risk actually because it's just another new thing and so if it doesn't work out who cares yeah but aren't we on our like third or fourth generation of this of reinventing javascript frameworks no it's been less than 10 years yeah but there's been i mean what do we start out with what were the what were the uh the first first ones uh oh (laughs) yeah even before backbone there was like no but people were Sencha is still being used. Yeah. And then Backbone, and then Knockout, and then React, and now, and well, React, and, or no, before React, like, it was what, Angular 1? Ember, Meteor. <laughs> I'm actually Meteor curious still. Somebody at my co-working place actually does it for their full-time job. It seems interesting. Meteor? Yep. Are they a consultant, or do they have a product in it? Uh, they're a consultant, but they're building somebody's app and just pure meteor and doing it by themselves. And there are like pretty popular meetup groups, both in Philly and Seattle about uh, meteor, but it no doesn't seem like they intersect that much with the rest of the JavaScript. I community. went to one talk on it and then I never followed up with it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I think you, I mean, I don't have anything to add other than what you know, Len, this falls into talking about frameworks. I don't know about, <laughs> I mean, Meteor, I feel like people I know who use it are huge fans, um, but then people who don't use it don't really even know about it or know why they would care about it. Right. They do pretty magical demos, though, where they just have like... Things hashtag just work. Yep. So Thanksgiving is coming up. We should talk about Thanksgiving. This episode is going to come out like a week after Thanksgiving. Oh, that is true. (laughs) Shit. Yeah, sorry. No starting out with food. I feel like we probably lose a lot of listeners. We were like, what is this programming podcast about food? Mm, yeah. And so like, yeah, I get it. Just saying, let's just start with programming sooner. I can get, I can get with that plan. And then a bunch of episodes, we get like rolling on programming with like 10 minutes left. And then we, <laughs> then we cut it. I think that was our, our compromise. Cause Justin doesn't want to do like focus on a topic, but. I think a compromise is just like start with a question or news item or something. Just start with something and then do our little talking about whatever. No. <laughs> uh, but on that note, are y'all ready for picks? I think Jervon's ready. Yes. <laughs> it's my music pick. It's a song called Hello by Adele. 
She has an amazing voice. And my programming pick uh, is the debugging uh, keynote from Closure Conch. And that's it for me. It's a good video. Did you see that video where Adele uh, went to like an Adele impersonator No, did she lose? Yeah, I, I was. <laughs> it's really good. I was good. on no, YouTube. And she put on I like prosthetics. Like the headline, but I didn't think of it to watch it. I'll watch it. It was like when Adele was Adele. Yeah, she put on prosthetics, waited in line, uh, and she kind of went on last. And then everyone just knew immediately that it was her. Uh, but just their reaction is what makes the video. Interesting. I'll check it out. Uh, so my pick, we're recording like two days after this came out, so it'll probably be old news uh, by the time we release this episode. Uh, but it's definitely the new Marvel series on Netflix, Jessica Jones. I'm like halfway through it. Uh, and it's really nice to have a, a superhero show that has like very few white dudes. Um, so it's refreshing. And it's uh, it's a little darker than the rest of the Marvel Universe, but it's really good. It was called Jessica Jones. Yeah. So kind of the premise is she has superpowers, like she's has super strength, but she's not really interested in being a superhero. Uh, she's a private, private investigator. And then the main villain is somebody that does mind control. So uh, it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's really good. Have you ever seen the movie? Uh, it's a Paul Rudd. Uh, and they take them, oh, Dinner for Schmucks, or Dinner for Schmucks. You've never <laughs> no. seen it? Oh, you should watch it. There's uh, Zach Galifianakis is uh, a mind control person at the dinner. That's good. You should watch it. <laughs> that, so that's a the American version of a famous French movie. Oh, okay. I'll have to watch that one, too. So I, I haven't seen the American one, but the French one is Le Dîner des Cons, which is the Dinner of Fools. It's good, right? Pretty, sh- I mean, it's good. I don't know. I think pretty sure I watched it in high school French class, but it was it was silly. So, um, so I found a pick. Um, so I'm gonna pick this video uh, since I mentioned Angular two uh, from Ordev, uh, which I don't I don't know if that's how you say it because it's one of those O's with a, sl- a slash through it. Um, but it's on Angular 2's data flow, which covers some of the the RxJS that shows up in Angular 2 and how data moves through Angular 2 differently than Angular Premier, Primero. You should do a video. I should do a video? On your Angular 2 setup. On your Angular 2 setup? You should live code it. Whoa. I don't know. So spoiler, my setup was to use the Angular 2 generator, which I still have a... a I guess a pull request kind of ticket out with the Angular 2 generator person um, because they they require you to have Gulp as a global dependency, but the instructions don't say that you have to have Gulp as a global dependency, which I take issue with. Um, and they're like, no, it's not a global dependency. If you just you know load it once and run it forever, then it never needs whatever. They're wrong, um, but I think they're trying to fix it. But yeah, so I use this uh, Yeoman generator. I think this one's a pretty good one. It's really, I appreciate uh, Yeoman generators that are not ridiculously fat, like overloaded. Like I feel like I use a Yeoman generator for an Angular, a regular, an Angular one app, and it installs like 8,000 dependencies for no apparent reason um, that have very little to do with making an Angular one app. So 
this Angular 2 generator pretty much gets you the very bare minimum that you need to do Angular 2, which I appreciate. Angular 2 and ES6 too, instead of TypeScript, because I didn't feel like doing TypeScript yet. Uh, so your notes are at turing.cool slash 71. Follow us on Twitter at turingcool, and I'll talk to you all later. Bye. Happy Thanksgiving. <laughs>